1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Tonight, of course, is our evening that we observe the Lord's Supper. And I thought that it would be appropriate for us to take a look this evening at the proper procedures for taking the supper. Last Sunday morning, I preached a sermon entitled, Eating at the Lord's Table. And what we learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that the people in Corinth had desecrated the Lord's Supper. They didn't understand uh, the relationship that they should have to one another, the fellowship that they should have with one another and with Christ, and neither did they really understand the elements that are used in the Lord's Supper. And so they had desecrated those things, and so Paul had to write to that church to to, to try to straighten them out on it. I thought that it might be a good idea for us tonight to look at some things that I didn't have time to cover during that sermon. Um, I spoke with some of the members of the church after the preaching last Sunday morning, and there were a few that told me that, well, there's some things that they didn't quite understand, and uh, it would be good for me to go over some things that I didn't have much time to spend with in, in that sermon. I was talking to, uh, to Donna Miller And uh, she told me that she was glad that I preached on the Lord's Supper because the last time that I did this, which uh, quite some time ago, she wasn't here for that or she was teaching another part of the building. And so she didn't get to hear all the explanations. So that sort of put it on my mind or occurred to me that there are many of you that probably haven't heard the teaching on this because it's been almost four years now since the last time that I preached specifically about the Lord's Supper. And so you might not even understand some of the terms that we use and may not understand why we insist on certain practices. So I want to take the sermon tonight and I'll give you a little bit more detail, particularly about one area of the Lord's Supper. And then you can take last Sunday morning's sermon, uh, if you heard that, and combine it with this one. And then you'll get the full picture of what we're talking about concerning the Lord's Supper. So we're going back to 1 Corinthians once again tonight. And so if you look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's stand, if you would please, as we read this. And we're, we're going to begin with verse number 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We just ask you, Lord, to watch over us as we explain these different things from the Scriptures. Help us to understand these things better. And we may see this evening proper procedures for taking this supper. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I am going to encourage you tonight to to pay 
close attention to what I have to say, so you'll follow uh, the arguments that I want to make from the Scripture. So listen very closely, take some notes if you want to, because uh, we're going to explain some things here tonight. First of all, I want to make it very clear, uh, once more, as I did last Sunday morning, that in Berean Baptist Church and among Baptists in general, that we do not consider the Lord's Supper or baptism to be sacraments. Now, a definition of a sacrament is a ritual or a religious ceremony that conveys grace upon the participant. Roman Catholics and even some Protestants believe that there is some grace that's conveyed on the person who takes the supper. And the Roman Catholics would even go so far as to say that you must take the supper. I mean, you must uh, observe it or else you'll be lost and you'll go to hell. Now, some Protestants... Although they don't believe that there's any salvific effects in, in the Lord's Supper, they do believe that there is some kind of grace that is, uh, that is uh, conveyed upon the participant when he takes it. But we believe that the Lord's Supper and baptism are not sacraments, but they're given to us as a memorial only. And Jesus has commanded this as a picture of his death, and he tells us to observe it until he comes again. So we do not believe... Even though it's a picture of grace and a picture of what has come upon the person who is a believer in Christ, we do not believe that a person actually receives any kind of grace when they take of the Lord's Supper. Now, let's begin tonight by, by discussing the place of the Lord's Supper. The place where the Lord's Supper is to be observed is in the church. Now, I'm not particularly speaking about this church building, although that would be a, a place that we normally take it, but... We remember that the church itself, or this building, this is not what the church is. The church is the people. It's the membership of the local body. And so we're to take the Lord's Supper with the membership of the local body. The church is an assembly of baptized people. It's a group of baptized believers who have covenanted together to carry out the Lord's commission. In other words, here in Berean Baptist Church, we are a baptized group of disciples. We are believing disciples, and we have covenanted together to carry out Christ's commission in order to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. We disciple other believers and tell them what the Lord has commanded that they ought to observe. And one of the things the Bible says that the, the, the church is to teach is the observance of the Lord's Supper. And so in order even to have a church, a church has to meet this criteria. They must be a people who celebrates the different ordinances that Christ has given us. So rather than to say that the building itself is the place of the Lord's Supper, we say that the church is the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper could be taken anywhere where this particular church decides to meet together for worship. Now, for instance, in, the, in September, we're going down to the camp at Mount Gilead, and all of the uh, church will be assembling there for, for that service that we have that each year. And if we wanted to take the Lord's Supper there, that would be all right. Because we have a church, we've gathered together, we've assembled, we've made a decision, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here, and we're going to worship God in this place. So that's all right. We can take the Lord's Supper in that way. But what is not all right is for a group of Christians to come together that are not meeting in church capacity, and they say, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. That's not right, because they are not the church. Individual Christians just meeting somewhere on their own, they do not represent the church in church capacity. Now, last week I, I told you about this incident that we had in Israel, where uh, 
supposedly one of the highlights of our trip is that we were to go into the garden tomb where Jesus was supposed to have been put when he died and that we were to observe communion there together. And all over the grounds of this memorial, there were several different groups that are meeting in different places and each of these groups was taking communion with each other. Well, you know, that might have been a very sentimental thing to do and I'm sure that there were people that got goosebumps because they took the Lord's Supper at the garden tomb But that is not the way that we're supposed to take the supper. That's the problem with this. It's not the way that Christ instituted the supper. So I didn't take communion with the group. I decided to step out because doing that, practicing that particular thing, is no different than any other bunch of hodgepodge beliefs that people have thrown into the mix of Christianity. That is not right for us to do that. So we never, never will we honor God by doing things in the wrong way, even if what we do we think feels good to us. So that's not the place to do it. Well, let's explore this a little bit more, and let's see here why we can't have communion with just anybody who says that they are Christian. Now, first of all, once again, it is a church ordinance. Now, some people don't understand that because they really don't understand what a church is. They believe that a church is when you get saved, when you trust Christ as the Savior, that you become a Christian and automatically you become a member of the church. Now, I don't believe that you can find anything like that in Scripture. I don't believe the Scripture teaches that because when the Apostle Paul, for instance, wrote to churches, he wrote to believers that were gathered together in a specific locality. And Paul was always writing to a particular church. He wrote to the church at Rome, he wrote to the church at Galatia, he wrote to Colossae, he wrote to Corinth, he wrote to Ephesus, he wrote to Philippi, and these other churches, he wrote to them as individual churches. And so there wasn't any confusion when he was addressing the Ephesians that somehow he was talking about the church at Rome, or the one at Galatia, or or at Corinth. So these are individual churches. And then we come to Revelation when Jesus is talking about the seven churches of Asia. It's very clear there that Jesus has a message for each particular church. And so he talked to that church that was organized and assembling in that particular locality. Now, when Paul wrote the book of Corinthians, what he's doing here, he's addressing a problem with this church for taking the Lord's Supper. This is a problem that's peculiar to that particular church at that time. And so Paul writes to them and he tells them what the problem is. And he wrote them to correct those those problems. Now, the correction, we understand, is for the members of that church. We might find out that we have a similar problem that they had, and that would be good for us to take heed to what Paul says. But his intention is to write there to the church at Corinth. Then, when Jesus instituted the supper, he was only meeting with members of the church. Who who were they? Who did Jesus meet with when he instituted the supper? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, it says, And God has set some in the church first apostles. Then he says in Ephesians 2, verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus began the church with the members of the churches, that church that was all apostles. All these men that Jesus called together, those apostles, they constituted the church. Now, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 20, in, in the beginning of this, when, when Jesus is instituting the supper, he gathers these men together during the Passover week. It's just before his death. And the scripture says in verse 20 of Matthew 26, now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. Then in verse 26, 
we find him instituting the supper. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So Jesus sat down with those men that he personally chose, and they were the foundational members of the church. Now the question is, were there more disciples than just these men when Jesus instituted the supper? Well, certainly there were. If we go to the book of Luke, we find that in in one instance there that Jesus sent out the 70. You remember that? There were 70 people that were believers in Jesus, and he sent them out two by two to go to different areas to preach the gospel. And the Bible says that they came back rejoicing. Well, that means that they had success. They won more converts. But we notice that when Jesus instituted the supper, that neither those 70 nor any of their converts were present for the supper. Now, that's because that Jesus was instituting the supper for the church, and those 70 disciples and their converts had not yet become members of of, of Jesus' church. Then when Jesus gave the commission, he gave that commission to the church. When he ascended back into heaven, he told the church that they were to preach, they were to baptize, you're to make disciples, you're to teach them to observe all things that the Lord has commanded. And one of the things that Lord commanded commanded was the observance of the supper. And so they were commanded to teach these people about the Lord's Supper. So in all of our New Testament examples, the Lord's Supper is always placed in the church. We don't find it in any case where it's uh, observed among mixed disciples, not a mixed company of believers, and certainly we don't find in Scripture that it was ever celebrated with unbelievers. So that leads me to a question that many people have, and that's the practice that we have in Berean Baptist that we take communion only among the members of this church. Why is it that we don't allow non-members to partake in a communion service? Well, let me say first to all all of you here that we don't do that because uh, we think that we're better Christians than someone else. We don't do it because we're so exclusive that we believe the only Christians that there are in the world, we have a corner on the Christian market right here in Berean Baptist Church, and we're the only Christians that there are. We don't do that. We practice it because that's what the Bible teaches, and that's because that Jesus and the apostles practice this very thing. Jesus is the one who has the right to invite people to his table, and we don't have any right to change what Jesus did. So we do it for the purpose because this is the practice of Jesus and the disciples. And whenever we decide that we're going to do it some other way, rest assured you're going to run in trouble when you do things the way that you want to do them rather than the way God says to do them. Now, to help explain this, let's remember it is a church ordinance, but also it is not a common ordinance. And what I mean is it's not common among all Christians regardless of your stripe or your flavor. We might have a common faith and maybe we don't, But certainly we can say this, we are not common in our church affiliation. And the proper observance of the supper is based upon what we believe to be the nature of the church. And we believe that the church is a local, visible body. That's the kind of church that Christ instituted. That's what he founded. And to the individual churches, that wherever they might be, true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of these individual churches represents the body of Christ in that locality. And so that's what I was talking about when I said, well, there's the church at Rome, there's the church at Ephesus, there's the church at Philippi, and so on. Those are organized churches that are the body of Christ in that particular locality. Well, now that we understand that this is for the church, it's not for Christians in general, 
then what we need to do is to explain some of the practices that other churches have concerning observing the Lord's Supper. Now, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. So let's talk about this. Number two is the participants in the Lord's Supper. The eligible participants for the Lord's Supper are very clearly defined in the Scriptures. Now, there's different bodies of Christians who have different ideas about this, and uh, they have an opinion that they like to give, but opinions don't matter. The tradition that somebody has doesn't matter. What matters is what we find right here in the Bible. We don't go by anybody's tradition or by anybody's opinion. There are basically three different ways that people practice communion. Two of those ways are wrong, and one way is right. So what are they? Well, we start with this. Open communion is not scriptural. Now, open communion means that any person who might be present in the service when the Lord's Supper is taken, any person who might be here, they can take of the supper with us. doesn't matter if that person is saved or lost. doesn't matter if they are a member of this church, if they're a member of a Roman Catholic church, if they're a Presbyterian, or if they're a member of no church at all. That doesn't make any difference. They are invited to come to the supper. Well, I think that we could say this. At the very least, wide open communion Wide open communion could not be the right way. And that's because nobody who isn't saved could ever commune with Christ. And this is the reason why that we celebrate this, because in the supper, with the body and the blood of Jesus that are given, we're saying that we identify with that. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and so in our fellowship with him, we take of the bread and of the, and the fruit of the vine that, that has been prepared for us. Now, a person who doesn't know Christ as their personal Savior, they can't possibly have that kind of communion with Christ. You can't do that. You have to have a relationship where you've trusted him as your personal Savior. Well, most of us here, I think that you'd probably agree with that. Don't have much problem. And really, most people that are Christians don't have any problem with that either. Well, what the Protestants have done... They have modified communion somewhat, and they say, well, as long as you are a baptized disciple, then it's all right to come to the communion. Well, we'd have a question about that. What if the person was baptized by infant baptism, which is what many of the Protestant churches practice? Would it be all right then? Well, it wouldn't because infant baptism is not even a baptism at all. That's not a scriptural baptism. I mean, when you put a baby under the water to baptize them, the only thing that you've done for that baby is get them wet. That does not constitute a Christian baptism. So at the very least, we would have to say that you'd have to be a baptized, believing disciple. You have to be qualified with that. The baptism must be a scriptural baptism. It must be baptism under the proper authority. That is, someone who has the right to administer it. It has to be a baptism that's been uh, given by the proper mode and that would be immersion in water, and then it would have to be a baptism that's done for the proper reason, and that would be because that person is saved and following the command of Christ to be baptized, and not for the purpose of salvation. And there are many people, of course, who do believe that, that baptism is what saves you. But if you go into the waters of baptism with that in your mind, then that is not a proper baptism. So we see then that open communion couldn't be correct, because it doesn't fit New Testament principles. So if open communion is not correct, and really most people, including Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Protestants and so forth, do not actually believe in a free, unrestricted, open communion. So if if that's not right, then we we can't open up the communion to just everyone. Now, what about the next idea? What about close 
communion. That's C-L-O-S-E, close communion. Close communion is not scriptural. If you were here four years ago, you, you would have heard me explain this a little bit differently than I am tonight because we're going to switch the terms around here. There's a lot of argument over which, is, which, which, which type means what, whether it's closed, C-L-O-S-E, or closed, C-L-O-S-E-D, which one, which one is that according to the terminology. So people have a difference of opinion about that. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to change what I said from from uh, the last time that I preached about this, the principle is exactly the same, but we're going to switch the terms around. And that's because most people among Baptists understand that closed communion is restricted to the fellowship of the church alone, and closed communion would mean of your denomination. So I'm going to make a statement then that close communion, C-L-O-S-E, is not scriptural. Now, sometimes close communion is actually referred to as denominational communion. In other words, if you belong to the same denomination that I'm in, then we are in agreement, and so then we can have uh, the Lord's Supper together, even though we're not members of the same church. We might go a little bit further. We might say, well, as long as we're churches of like faith and order, if you believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, if you believe in uh, baptism by immersion and you practice that, if you have a congregational polity in your church and you practice that, then we're sufficiently close enough in practice that we would be able to take communion together. Well, is that all right? Is it all right if we're in the same denomination? Well, the first thing you have to do is that you have to prove denominationalism from the New Testament. Now, we might call ourselves the denomination of Baptists, but strictly speaking, we don't even believe in denominationalism. We don't think there's any such thing as denominations. Denominations, denominationalism is actually an offshoot of the universal invisible church theory. And so people surmise that because we're all members of this one great big church in the sky, that we have just a little bit of difference in practices, but we're all the same members of that one big universal church, and our denominations are simply branches off of that and local manifestations of that invisible church. Well, if you can find that in the Scripture... I would appreciate it very much if you come and show me where that is because I've never seen that in the Bible. I've never seen anything about denominations in the Bible. Now, one of the reasons why we may call ourselves the Baptist denomination is simply because that is a designation of our common belief of what practice, uh, practices that, that Baptists have believed down through the centuries. Essentially, what it's saying is that these Baptist beliefs are one and the same with what Jesus and the apostles preached all the way back in the New Testament. So strictly speaking, we can say we're not a denomination. All we've done is just put a modifier on this so that we understand what we believe is a church. I mean, there's a lot of different, a lot of different churches, a lot of confusion out there, a lot of people calling themselves churches. And so we put that little name Baptist on there to determine who we are among all these people out there that believe these different things. So if we just put a sign up on the front of this building that said church, or if we put up a sign that says community church, or if we put up a sign that says Bible church, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything at all. There is no definition of doctrine in that. If you have a community church in Roanoke Park, you know that it could mean that you practice what most or many Christians in Roanoke Park believe, and that is that it's all right to ordain gays and women into the, into the fellowship, uh, uh, into the, ordain them into the ministry of the church. It's all right to do that. 
Uh, it could be that we don't even use the Bible in our services at all, that we completely ignore what the Bible has to say. It doesn't define us at all to say it's a community church or it's a Bible church. That doesn't say anything. But when we put the name Baptist up there, that identifies us with Baptist doctrine. It should, at least. Unfortunately, among many Baptists, it doesn't actually do that. Instead, what it, Baptists have done today, they have doctrine that's much more like Methodist church than what Baptists have always believed. So that's not always the clearest thing that we can do. But I'll tell you this. When you see Baptists on our sign out there, and when you see Baptists applied to this church, that means that we are historic Baptists, and we're hanging on to the very same principles that Jesus and the apostles taught. Now, if we just stick church out there, somebody would think, well, maybe that's a charismatic church. Maybe they're going to have a, a, a healing meeting on Friday night, and everybody's going to be speaking in tongues. Well, when you put the name Baptist up there, you'll know that that's not what we do. So we believe that these things that we practice as Baptists go all the way back to the true churches from the time of Christ until the present day. And so we can't accept close communion based on denominationalism because there is no such thing as denominations in the Scripture. And we can't have communion with people that are simply of like faith and order or have the same practices that we do, and yet they are a different kind of church because the supper is for the specific members of a local congregation. Now, that leads me to the third concept, and we believe that this is the correct one and that it's closed communion. C-L-O-S-E-D, closed communion is scriptural. Closed communion means that it should be observed only among the members of each individual Baptist church. Now, I've already given you some proof that that's the correct way, but we're going to go through this again, and we're going to look at four reasons why we say that closed communion is correct. Number one, closed communion is vindicated by Jesus Christ. Now, we've already covered that some, but let's state this again. When Jesus gave the supper, there were only 11 disciples that were present there to take it with him. Judas had already gone out. When you put the accounts together, you find out that when these men sat down to eat and Jesus instituted the supper, Judas had already gone out and he was doing his dastardly work of betraying Jesus. So he wasn't there. And that's fitting that he shouldn't be there because he was an unbeliever. And you don't take the Lord's Supper among unbelievers. And so when Jesus instituted the supper, the only ones that were there were those 11 disciples, and they were the foundational building blocks of his church. Now, as I said, there were many other disciples that were saved at that time. Those 70 that were sent out, they were saved, but they're not at the supper. All of their converts that were saved, they're not at the supper. The disciples of John the Baptist... And John the Baptist baptized hundreds of people, but those disciples of John the Baptist were not there. The man who owned this house, he wasn't there. Jesus' mother Mary was not there when Jesus instituted the supper. And the reason they weren't, because they were not part of the church at that time. And so the way that Jesus instituted the supper, that shows us it's a local church ordinance and it's only to be observed by members of the church. Now, number two, then, closed communion is vindicated by doctrinal unity. By doctrinal unity. Now, let's go back in 1 Corinthians to the, the same chapter in the verses preceding the ones that we just read. Look at verse number 18. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. 
For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What we see here is that one of the main stipulations for partaking the supper, the proper observance, is that there must be doctrinal unity. How is it possible for us to have doctrinal unity with people that we don't know anything about? How would we do that? How do we have doctrinal unity with people that aren't members of our same church? Now, we certainly don't have doctrinal unity with Protestants, and we don't have doctrinal unity with Roman Catholics. The reason that we are Baptists and, and not Methodists and not Assemblies of God and not Presbyterians and not a community church is because we are united in these same beliefs that the Baptist church has taught all the way back to the time of Christ. So how could we obey the scriptural precept of, obeying the, uh, of taking the Lord's Supper and observing this together if we observe it with those who have heresies and that are not united to us doctrinally? Now, here, Paul is telling us that different doctrine causes divisions. We never relax our doctrinal differences for the sake of unity. And so, since there's division there, that division keeps us from taking the Lord's Supper together properly. Now, Paul said that there were divisions in this Corinthian church. There we're talking about one church. I mean, all the people of this one church came together, and Paul said, among you that are even members of the same church, there are divisions. Now, it couldn't be any plainer than this, that if inside the church itself there are divisions, and Paul says, you can't take the Lord's Supper that way, then certainly he wouldn't say, well, let's have it with anybody, no matter what they believe about it. Let anybody come in and take the Lord's Supper with us. There'd be doctrinal division there. And he says specifically, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's what he says in those verses. So here's one of the main reasons that you can't have the Lord's Supper in a place where you have tourists over in Israel and and people that come from all different church backgrounds, all different kinds of doctrinal opinions. The reason that you can't do it is because there is division there. We're not in agreement with the things that are in the Bible. And the same thing is true right here in Rona Park, California. When you have people come in that are not a part of the church, there is no doctrinal unity, therefore we have division, and therefore we cannot take the Lord's Supper. Now, thirdly, closed communion is vindicated by church discipline. Now, perhaps one of the reasons why uh, uh, people have no problem with open communion and open it to anybody who wants to come is because churches don't practice discipline any longer. But here's really one of the very best proofs. Perhaps it can almost be just like the number one proof of why we have, we have closed communion, and that's over the issue of proper discipline and proper authority in the church to administer that discipline. If you look at Corinth, Corinth is a case study in the very thing that we're talking about. Here is a church that has all kinds of problems. Paul writes to them and straightens them out, and he insists that they get their doctrine correct and that they discipline those who are not obeying the Lord in that church. The context of all of this is in, a very, in the very same letter where Paul addresses the issue of the Lord's Supper. Now, you have your Bible there. Turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read here what Paul has to say about discipline. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we want to look at verse number 11. 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. 
Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, first of all, I want you to look at the end of verse number 11. He's just given us a list of different sins that people commit. And then he says here, you are not to eat with them. Now, do you suppose that Paul is talking about having lunch at Chili's? And when he says don't eat with them? Well, of course not. One of the ways that you showed that a person was out of fellowship with God and out of fellowship with the church is not to permit them to take the Lord's Supper. So if someone walks in off the street and they say, Hey, great, Berean Baptist Church is observing communion tonight, so let's all go join in with that. What do we know about that person? Now, I'm not accusing them of these sins that Paul says, not of idolatry and all these other things that he talks about. I'm not saying they're a drunkard, but what do we know about that person? Now, what if you have a friend or a relative who comes to church with you, or you have a, another Baptist person who's a, bap, and a, a good standing member of another Baptist church? What do you do about them? Well, we don't let them take the communion because that person is not under the jurisdiction of our church. Look at verse number 12 again. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? Now, Paul says there that I can't judge people that are on the outside of the church. We're concerned about people who are on the inside of the church. And so if there's a man over here in this apartment complex or these condos over here next door to us, and this man decides he's going to run off with the neighbor's wife, what's that to us? I mean, it's a sad thing. We don't want to see it, but we don't have any authority over that. There's no jurisdiction. We can't say anything to that man. He's not a part of this church. But if a person in this church, one of you, you do the very same thing, this church has authority over you. This church has the authority to tell you that you need to straighten that up. And that's what we would do. We would go to you and we'd say, you need to repent of that sin. You need to straighten that thing out. And if you don't repent, then we're going to do exactly what Paul describes right here in 1 Corinthians. We're going to put you out of the fellowship of the church. Now, in verse number 1 of chapter 5, Paul deals with this man who's guilty of having an affair with his stepmother. And he says in verse number 7, purge them from the church. Now look at the context of this, verses 7 and 8, if you would. Purge out therefore the old leaven, and he's talking about sin, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's Paul talking about there when he says the feast? What does he mean when he says unleavened bread? Well, I don't think there's any question at all that these are allusions to the Lord's Supper. And so we keep the Lord's Supper in sincerity and truth when we practice discipline of members. And we don't have the ability to do that with the person who's not a part of this church. We don't have any authority over that person. Now, do you see how clear that is? The way that we control this whole thing is by the practice of closed communion. Now, let's say that we do, in fact, believe in close communion, C-L-O-S-E. We do believe in that. So there's a member of another Baptist church, and they show up on our communion night. But it so happens that that particular person has been disciplined by the church that they're a member of. So they tell this person, well, you've committed the sin, and you won't, you won't repent of the sin, so we're telling you that you are not eligible to take the Lord's Supper with us because you've not repented of that sin. Well, he says, well, that's okay. Berean Baptist Church is observing the Lord's Supper tonight, so I'll just go over there and have it with them. What would that do? It undermines authority. It undermines the authority of that church, and it also undermines the authority of our church. 
And so the scriptures are clear about this, that a person who is under discipline and a person or or a person who is not under our church authority and who's not in our doctrinal beliefs, he doesn't have unity of doctrine with us, and, and a person that we can't discipline, that person should not take the Lord's Supper with us. Now, fourthly, closed communion is vindicated by New Testament order. The order in which we find this in the Scriptures shows us that closed communion is the right way. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 2, if you would. All of you are familiar with Acts 2. This is when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came and he empowered the church. And I want to remind all of you, the church did not begin on Pentecost. It began with Jesus and the disciples and those apostles. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and empowered the church for its mission. Look at verses 41 and 42. This is right after Peter gives that powerful sermon. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So the New Testament order that we see in this scripture, salvation number one, baptism number two, continuance in fellowship, and then breaking of bread. And so all of those that are baptized, according to verse number 41, these people have all been added to the church. They continue in fellowship of the church, and then they go on to take the Lord's Supper together. That's what the breaking of bread means. Well, there's only one church that was in existence at that time. That's the church at Jerusalem. And every person who was there taking the Lord's Supper was a member of that one particular church. And so what we have here, we don't have any proof at all. There's no scriptural basis that either open or closed communion could be correct. It must be by closed communion. And that's the only way that it's scriptural. Now, let's bring that down then to the reality of our current practice. We ask that only members of the church, those who have become members of this church, to participate in the Lord's Supper. When we do that, we are not denigrating anyone's character. We're not saying that they're not Christians. We're not saying that we're better Christians than they are. We're not accusing them of heresy. We're not saying you're guilty of any kind of evil practices. The only thing that we're saying is that we cannot invite to the Lord's table those whom the Lord would not invite. And that is only the individual members of that particular church. Now, those who are not members of the church, what they should do is they should be present when their own church takes the Lord's Supper. That would be the proper thing to do. But let's suppose that this person comes in and they're not even a member of a church at all or they're even an unsaved person. Well, then we have this this admonition from the Scriptures that we are not to take the Lord's Supper unworthily. So a person who's not a member of the Lord's church is not obeying the Lord, and they would be, they would be taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. If they missed the services and never get to take it with their own church, then they came here, they would be taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. So when we say that we're only going to let people that are members of our church partake of the supper with us, then we're following the practice that's in the New Testament. Now, as I said, there are other parts of this that you still need to know. We talked about it in in the sermon last week. You need to know about the purpose of the supper. And the purpose is to show forth the death of Christ until he comes again. You need to know about the elements. The unleavened bread, that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. You need to know about that juice that we drink in the cup, the grape juice that we use. That represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. And so that's what we have 
communion with or with each other because those are our common beliefs and, and, and what we practice. So we're saying then that we have this relationship with God. But that's not all. That's not all the Scriptures teach. Not only is there relationship, but the Bible also says you must have fellowship. And so that's why Paul says that you must examine yourselves before you eat of the supper. You have to make sure that you are in fellowship with one another and that all of your sins are confessed. So you have to fellowship with each other before you can fellowship with Christ. You, you can't do, I mean, you can't leave out one of those and still be in fellowship. That's an impossible. So if you're in fellowship with Christ, you will be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what you have to do before you take the supper is that you get all of the bitterness out of your heart, you get all the envy, you get all the jealousies out, you get all the bad feelings and the bitterness out against any other member, and you make that thing right. Those who love Christ must love each other. So that's the teaching on the Lord's Supper. Put those two messages together. Go back and pick up the other one. Listen to it again if you need to or get a copy of that. Listen to that. Then listen to this. And you have the Bible's view of the Lord's Supper. You have Paul's view of the Lord's Supper as he teaches it. And you also have this church's view of the Lord's Supper. These are the proper procedures and the way that God would have us to observe this supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and... We do pray, Lord, that there's understanding here over why we practice certain things in the church. We want to do these things in a way that will honor and glorify you. And so we want to stick by the the principles that are laid down for us in the New Testament. Help us, Lord, as we observe the supper tonight, that we would have the kind of love and the unity that we ought to have. Lord, speak to our hearts through this invitation time and then in the supper that follows. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.